we forgo forgoed that forgoed. we forgoed it <laughs> we we got rid of that Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Mona. We are, post- <laughs> we are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we're going to be tackling the subject of anti-intellectualism. And for our segment, we're going to be doing a good old-fashioned host check-in. This particular subject is, I would, th- at least for me, and if you listen to our very first episode, is kind of a catalyst for all of us in our move away from conservative evangelicalism into something different, into <laughs> something we're still defining. And uh, for for me, it was particularly problematic. And what I mean by anti-intellectualism is this, at least in my context, you there were certain schools you would go to because other schools and other forms of education would corrupt you, would move you away from the gospel. So it wasn't this opening up of understanding and saying, here's all these things you should really explore. It was a almost an insecurity about what they what they would refer to as the truth. We need to protect the truth and protecting us from protecting us from lies is protecting us from other people's knowledge. And it was a narrow focus. And I remember, uh, even though I didn't go to seminary, I went. To, my undergrad was in theology. And at the same time, I was working full-time as a youth pastor at a church. And uh, I remember being conflicted constantly of, I'm learning all this amazing stuff from my theology professors and my biblical studies professors, but I can't apply it. I can't teach it in my church context because I'll get in trouble. Like it'll, I'm not only get in trouble, but I'll probably get fired. And uh, it was, it was very, there was a lot of tension in that. It's interesting, Jeff, that you said what you mean by anti-intellectualism, because people, we'll talk about that in a sec, people mean different things by that. Yes. Um, It's definitely a spectrum. Some, some of that is very kind of mild and other traditions are really strictly anti-intellectualism. But even in sort of the moderate and mild, what you would think are more moderate and mild communities sometimes can really clamp down when they feel threatened by certain types of knowledge. And I know people who have personally been let go from ministerial positions for basically seeking the wrong kind of knowledge or using their brains um, or reading too much or asking too many questions or Mm -hmm. kind of identifying themselves as like an overly curious person. Like like when, and when I went to seminary, uh, I was told by a close family member um, to not lose my faith in seminary because that's, the conception that that's what happens when you ask too many questions. <laughs> Absolutely. And when I was when I was a youth pastor, I'd go to youth pastor meetings and we would have as like I would go to denominational meetings and we would have these conversations, these breakout sessions to talk about why are we losing students when they go to college. And I finally got up one day and I was like, look, the reason we're losing them is because we're holding too tightly to them and we're telling them that they're going to face all these horrible things and we're not teaching them how to encounter new ideas or we're teaching them how to avoid new ideas. Oof, and, that's I got, good. and I got a couple stairs and then one guy just laid into that idea and uh, it, it never seemed to get anywhere. There's a couple guys that came to me after and be like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I've been thinking that same thing and da, 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 da. But nothing ever changed because you're not just like challenging. You're not just changing something in that moment. You're challenging a whole entire system. And uh, that was that was probably the difficult part. Most difficult part about my journey away from um, evangelicalism was this constant hiding a part of who I was and having to be creative with how I communicated those things. It's still, you know, 
It still came out from time to time, but I think I managed to suppress it for the most part. Yeah. And it's hard when you start unraveling this stuff that for me, there's a lot of feelings attached to it as someone who likes to think and talk and have conversations to feel like I was in an environment where that part of me was not accepted. Um, it still brings up a lot of pain. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, for it sure. It really does. It really does. So I'm, I'm still working through that myself, I think. Yeah. And, and that's, it's a tough thing to work through. I think we'll probably get into this as the conversation goes, but it's easy to get into a place of elitism when it comes to like, well, you need to know this and this is the truth. And I think it, it can happen on both sides of the fence, but it's also a part of your personality. Like there's some of us that are just questioners. We like to know the answers. We like to seek and go after things and not be confined in one area. And when you have to, at least on the outside, confine yourself, that that is that can be very damaging, especially when people say things to you and they don't understand that that's a big part of your personality and who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And and you just look like um it's and I think in those communities that people who don't quite fit the mold are often labeled rabble rousers, they're labeled rebellious. Yes. And that happens so much in in my experience is that uh you know that person's just got a rebellious spirit. That person just, you know, doesn't want to accept the holy spirit's mastery or whatever people say, you know, I I mean, a lot of churches, if they're really being honest, if they would really sign their name on the dotted line of like what they're really wanting from parishioners, it's, it's obedience before thinking. It really is. It really is. They're, I think that a lot of church communities, this is maybe a harsh thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I really feel strongly about this. I think a lot of church communities attract people who need security and they need peace in that community and maybe this because they've gone through bad things you know and they they need a community that that makes sense to them and that that functions and so a lot of times that means suppressing dis, uh, difference at all costs especially difference doctrinally because a lot of people really need um, a very clear set of rules in their belief structure and they need it all to fit together. Yeah. And I would say to affirm that, I struggle with that too. There were so many times running a ministry that it was just so much easier if everyone would just stay in line because I, I knew what I was doing and I wanted to get whatever I wanted to get done. And I, I had I still have to remind myself that it's not about that. It's not about getting something done. It's about creating a space where people can be who they're really meant to be. And it's been highlighted for me even more having two very strong-willed daughters who are toddlers. So on top of the, just their regular strong-willed personality, but it's such a, it's such a temptation as a parent to be, to want to control, to want to squash those moments of like questioning. And especially now, cause they're hitting the, the why, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff. And I have to, I have to consciously tell myself, let that go. Like that's, that's part of who they are and don't don't squash that because it was squashed with you. So I don't I don't even think necessarily it's church communities. I think it's anytime you have a place of of power, you're going to do that. You see that in corporate structures and stuff like that. And I just think that the church sometimes is too prideful to recognize that they are also just as guilty and just as susceptible as that. I don't think it's pride. I think it's fear. Fear of loss of power. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think, that's part of it too, yeah. I think a lot of churches take up the idea of their identity of their role in society is to protect uh, the gospel and to protect order and truth and morality and goodness. And so if you're, if your job in society is a protector, it, you know, you're going to, you're going to fight different fights than if you see yourself as a refuge in a place of healing 
um, you know, so I think it, it, it's a lot of churches really, um, kind of grasping this belief that society is really getting worse. It, I think it has a lot to do with millennialism is, um, the idea that these are, we are in the last days, you know, that Schofield theology that the, the world is getting worse and this is the end of times and we have to kind of batten down the hatches. And if you really genuinely believe that your actions are going to follow a certain, Rue, and you're going to probably have a more dualistic understanding of the cosmos of like, there's good and evil, there's, there's true knowledge and false knowledge. And we really have to protect ourselves against false knowledge and, and, and worldliness, because that will take us away from God. And that will cause us to miss the rapture or whatever people, for sure, you know, or miss so. or miss heaven, the ultimate or miss heaven missing out yeah. on. Yeah. It, well, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because I think that that, that addresses uh, or starts to address the other side of the coin that we kind of mentioned earlier is this idea of anti-intellectualism means different things to different people because it's, it's, that's kind of a buzzword amongst people who are heavily into pol- apologetics where if people don't have the black and white sound doctrine, if people aren't listening to the Bible itself, like, so these, these type of heavily apologetic people will attack you know, contemporary churches who are not, you know, using, not talking about the blood of Jesus or these things in the Bible that don't have any cultural relevance to to people outside the church in order to bring them into their doors. So there, there's another side of this idea when we talk about anti-intellectualism, that's kind of a, there's a, uh, a set knowledge. And, you know, I mean, there's so many examples of that, like any, any book that Josh McDowell ever wrote, or, you know, that, that a whole apologetic section, which is, you know, they are the, the source of knowledge, you know, these schools are saying all this stuff, but here we're here to, to intellectually defute these things. And it's very modern in its thinking, like you're saying, dualistic, like it's very black or white, this or that. When, when you and I first started to reconnect after you had, you know, graduated from high school and I left to college and then you finished college and we ended up in the same area again. I remember one of the books that you first recommended to me was a book. I think it was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Yeah. Mark Knoll is a pretty exceptional, um, evangelical scholar who is at Notre Dame currently, I think, um, but writes a lot of very measured stuff about the history of evangelicalism. And, um, he really laid into, he really laid into the evangelical world for hanging on to that tradition. Yes, exactly. Um, but mm-hmm. the only other time that that book was ever recommended to me was in the context of apologetics, that the, the evangelical church today has lost its way and needs to go back to being, you know, uh, intellectual about the way they approach Bible and the world and, and let go of their emotions. Oh, interesting. Okay. So let, let's, I think this is a great point to talk about the history of evangelicalism a little bit more. Um, we covered some of this in one of our first episodes, history of evangelicalism, where I, yes, I attempted to do like episode 1.5. It was you and 1.5. Yeah. I attempted to do like a, a church history lesson in like an hour and a half. So if you're, if you want that, like if you want a pretty good a, like nutshell understanding of church history, go listen to that one. If that interests you, we it try is. to make it fun. Yeah. And we'll put it in the show notes. Um, because yeah, that, that was, that was our, that was our first bonus episode. Cause we started with just our stories and then we, we laid the ground or you and Alan laid the groundwork, um, for history and evangelicalism. It's a great episode. Everyone listening, put it in the show notes. We're going to, you got to listen to it. It's good. Thanks. Thanks for the shout out. Um, so we got to rewind back to like the 1700s, when a guy that you've probably read uh, one of his sermons in high school or something, um, sinners in the hands of, the, of an angry God might ring a bell to some of you listening. This, this preacher was named Jonathan Edwards, who was an incredibly 
educated person. So, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has been the center of education. So, you know, anti-intellectualism and anti-education is a strong break from the majority of Christian history. So that's a, that's an interesting thing. Jonathan Edwards was very highly educated and Jonathan Edwards started putting some uh really not fire and brimstone actually sinners in the hands of an angry god interestingly is one of his more fiery sermons and like intense sermons as far as like teaching us on hell but a lot of his teachings are really um more happy and edifying but he he preached in a really emotive way that caused people to respond to his preaching in an emotional sort of way and and convert and want to reaffirm their commitment to god and uh, an itinerant preacher named George Whitfield um, heard him preach. Um, George Whitfield was from uh, England. And George Whitfield was kind of amazed at this style, this particular style of preaching. George Whitfield was also educated. And he brought that style back to England. So concurrently, you have like two sort of revival movements springing up of like preachers getting really excited and jazzed about bringing like an emotional component into their preaching. Whereas before it'd been, been very, very like intellectual and mental kind of only. So that's what started the first great awakening. Um, and it really crossed continents. I and mean, it's pretty, pretty fascinating how this happened. You know, and th- this is when the American democracy is very young very, very young. So Jonathan Edwards, you know, was preaching in uh, the mid 1700s. So this is before, you know, 1776. Um, And what's really interesting is that when settlers came and settled the U.S., uh, before it was the U.S., you had people from Germany and France and Sweden and Britain and bringing all these different religious traditions with them. Um, so you have Huguenots and you have Quakers and you have uh, Lutherans and you have Calvinists and people from brought all these like these Protestant traditions that has fractured across Europe from the time of the Protestant Reformation, you know, Martin Luther for the next couple of hundred years, they brought all those different traditions with them and all those shades of um, of theology. Uh, during the time before the, when the United States was still colonies, um, there weren't a lot of schools and there weren't a lot of educated preachers. So a lot of times the preachers would travel from church to church on any given in, during the month, they would be itinerant. So they would, they would move around. And a lot of times, uh, churches of different traditions and congregations of different traditions and even different languages and different cultural traditions would share the same minister. So there's kind of a going theory out there. I think um, the scholar who writes about this is George Marston. We can put it in the show notes. We'll put some some links for you down there. Um, writes that this might have been kind of the start of the idea that we need to unify and kind of cross small, minute cultural differences to create something larger, that first great awakening spirit of like, we're all Christians, we're all sharing this revival spirit. And a couple decades later, you have uh, the Constitution, you know, and 1776 happened. So, you know, the spirit of democracy is really kind of concurrent with that first great awakening. The first great awakening, however, absolutely still stressed education. And this is what was really interesting. Um, that as so the first great great awakening started dying down you know in the uh turn of the century by the mid 1800s you have 
like Manifest Destiny, people pushing west and getting farther and farther out in the middle of nowhere, away from schools, away from socialization, um, people just trying to take land and settle it, you know, a lot of times colonially in, in ways that were horrifying to Native peoples. I just want to say that it is not a rosy picture in a lot of ways how this whole process happened. So I don't want to say that this was like God's gift to the church, you know, that the Great Awakenings, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about these revivalism movements because um, I think it's as much a product of culture and time and kind of a perfect storm of cultural elements as it is like uh, some kind of movement of God. I, I think it's interesting to look at the other, the political uh, context before looking at any sort of theological implications. So mid mid 1800s, people are even more spread out. They're having to spread a lot more resources um, on f fewer um, amongst greater distances, if that makes sense. So it was very common in that day for pioneering families to literally only own one book. They were incredibly, incredibly poor. So that book usually was the Bible. Kids went, were homeschooled because they were out on the frontier and there weren't really schools to go to. Um, or they were like very small boarding schools, or not boarding schools, but one, one room schoolhouses. So, so there was a second great awakening in the 1800s, the mid 1800s that had this revivalism spring up again, but this time it had a different shade to it. This time it was like, you know, we're, we're, we're a young country. We don't have a lot of infrastructure. We don't have a lot of entertainment. And when that tent revival rolls into town, that's like the biggest thing you've seen. That's like, that becomes like your yearly, like entertaining Woodstock circus event. Like you go, you go to the revival. That's where you see all your neighbors that you only get to see once or twice a year. And you have a good time, you know? Um, and the preachers during that time started emphasizing uh, emotionalism more and more, that the, the, fan, the fantastic nature of having these emotional displays and these fantastic healings and these fantastic conversions. Um, you know, and if you think about it, if society is really, the fabric of society is really loose because everyone's spread out so far and and towns and cities are all just, everything's new. Everything's very loosey-goosey. Um, what brings stability to a community? Well, religion is a really great tool to bring stabi stability to a community. It's a really great tool for cleaning up unwanted behaviors like alcoholism. It's a really good tool for creating social hierarchy and social order and for creating sort of a sense of establishment amidst chaos. So the Second Great Awakening helped to found, helped to like drive forward manifest destiny and even kind of fostered this idea that manifest destiny was God's will, that we have to missionize the native peoples and convert them. And the spirit of like missionizing revivalism kind of went hand in hand. But up in that came the second great awakening preachers who were also educated people, but preaching like, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit and you have God and you have this emotional response to God, like you can trust those feelings, you can trust that faith and that if you have that faith, they don't really need your book learning. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. You know, you, you know, it, it's, it's a really interesting turn that just kind of happened out of a cultural context. And then when uh, the Pentecostal movement hit in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, so just a couple decades later, they actually, the Pentecostal movement out of Azusa Street, the early Pentecostal preachers were not educated and actually preached against education because they were very skeptical about it because um, they found that 
to give themselves over to the movement of the Holy Spirit and the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit really was kind of conflictory with the, um, with the education and the, you know, biblical exegesis and whatever sort of tools that you might learn in the academy. Um, it, interestingly, between those two points, between the Second Great Awakening and the uh, Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s, um, was this really interesting period of American history called the Progressive Era. So post-Civil War, so Civil War, you, you can argue too, was a kind of an a lot of effort of Christians to change society based on Christian ideals and intellectual Christians. Um, the post-Civil War brought about a really interesting period of time when when Christians were the ones fighting for social change, fighting to end child labor, fighting to for universal education, that every kid has a right to ed- be educated, fighting for uh, a 40-hour work week and for labor rights. Um, and that would eventually lead to fighting for women's right to vote and for, um, you know, up to civil rights, the end of um, segregation. So th- that's a long, kind of an alternate history known as social gospel. And the social gospel folks tended to be more intellectual in nature versus the emotionalist or the intellectual, anti-intellectual route. Um and then fast forward to the 1920s and that's when the huge split over evolution and that, that rift kind of became deeper and wider. Yeah. And we see it today. Just that's like a huge gulf now amongst progressive Christians and conservative Christians in the U S. And I think that that's not to say that emotionalism is bad or that's necessarily a bad approach. At least I don't think so, but when not it, inherently. yeah, not inherently, but I think, I think when a solution or something good in that context that happens is universalized across time. I think that's where we begin to run into a lot of problems. Um, and I think it manifests itself a lot in, in, in things like back in the good old days uh, when, you know, well, right now make America great again. You know what I mean? That whole idea and that whole phrase is centered around one specific context from one specific people group. And that's more of a play on people's nostalgia and emotions, not balanced with any kind of fact. But then you have someone like who's, when you're talking about from the social gospel part of the progressive movement, you have someone like Martin Luther King Jr., where if you hear his voice and you hear the way he communicated his ideas, because he was brilliant. I mean, if you, if you haven't find his writings and and i mean he was very very well versed in, in theology and culture and, and he all had that a doctorate stuff. in theology yeah, exactly yeah, that's why we call him well dr educated. martin luther king yeah exactly right. yeah um but he also inspired he also appealed to people's emotions because i think you have to yeah so so now you know it's interesting we have this rift like the progressives can be i've seen progressive christians be guilty of hubris and thinking that the emotional component is not necessary um and that's really common in academia um that that that's somehow lesser than uh and that comes out of you know a philosophical dualism that we've had in western thought for a very long time that that rationality is better and a higher mode of thinking than emotions but we know like modern psychology and neurology has debunked this like all those you know emotion and reason are completely mixed up together inseparably and you can't you know we're we're not automatrons so you know it's interesting they said make america great again because i th- i think a lot of us can resonate with that that dream as stated if you kind of try to remove it from its present political context yeah like i want america to be great so do you like everybody wants america to be great but what what our definition of that is obviously what that doesn't mean for me colonial might and military oppression you know the reason education for me is important is that education helps you sort out 
what you might be holding on to or might have internalized that is superstitious and magical thinking versus something based more in what could be argued is reality and real. This is going to get me in trouble, I think, by saying this. But okay, I'll, I'll say this. People who have less education tend to, not always. Um, I've met some brilliant people who are not educated and brilliantly logical and and wise and smart and know a lot of things. Education is not everything. However, people who are non-educated tend to have more of a proclivity to believe in magic and magical answers and magical thinking and superstition. So like, like go back to the second great awakening, have like uh, huge populations of American people who are non-educated and, and go to these tenant revival meetings and really genuinely believe that God can heal them of domestic abuse, for example. And Hey, someone makes a big show out of, you know, confessing their sin in public and, uh, uh, being healed from being an abuser, then everything's hunky dory and God healed them. And therefore we're good, you know, and, and people still to this day believe that. Um, and I know there's always exceptions of stories that you probably hear about, like, you know, that happened and then the family never had an issue again and God really did heal them. And, um, I, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Well, I think that's, that's, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. Well, when we talk about anti-intellectualism in general or anti-education or whatever, we're not talking, and like you said, we're not talking anything to do with someone's intelligence. We're talking about their ignorance. I mean, really, right? Because the definition of ignorance is just something you do not know. It's well, anti intellectual is, is willful ignorance. Yes. Actually. Yes. That's, that's, that's the interesting part about it. Um, and, and so if I can just devil's advocate myself for a minute, like going back to the <laughs> example of like being healed from domestic abuse in your family, like the argument would go, well, if you just view it as an extension, then you're not really going to have real faith that God can heal your family. So you're just kind of praying for this, but not really believing that God's going to give it to you because you're having all these backup plans for how you're going to solve this issue in the material world or in a worldly way. So I think the argument would go like the only option really then is to have faith that this can be possible for you and to believe that God will completely heal your family from this, you know, problem, this sin, this, uh, generational curse or whatever people call it. So for me, this whole conversation comes down to faith and how people view faith and the importance of faith. And people really honestly, genuinely believe. And I, you know, again, I don't know what to do this. It doesn't work for me, but I, I know people who this really works for that, um, that faith really is all you need and God will give you all that you need. And if you believe, and if you have faith like a child, like, you know, and that I, I've visited churches where the pastor says, I want children to be able to understand my sermon. And if a child can't understand my sermon, then I'm not doing my job. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of a nice sentiment, but like you're speaking to adults and isn't that infantilizing? Um, isn't that treating adults like kids and, and kind of stunting their, their intellectual and even emotional growth? If you're always, um, you know, I don't think that's a good interpretation of faith like a child, but I do think that conservative Christians have an emphasis on on having faith that progressives don't have because progressives are tend to be more skeptical, tend to be just have skepticism built into their faith um, because of their more focus on worldly engagement and worldly transformation. Um, so it, it's really interesting. So I think that that's the question. It, it, 
how anti-intellectual are you? How willfully ignorant are you will often depend on how you see faith and the role of faith in your life as a Christian. Yeah. I, well, I think that's a good clarification, willful ignorance. Because really, I think it, <laughs> I think it's the Bible's fault, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's a series of books who, for people in their time, were trying to put words to their experiences and their thoughts on who God was out of, out of just like historical ignorance, right? Society hadn't progressed enough for certain things to be known. And because we've set scripture or because many Christians have set scripture in stone as it, it's in that one place, we have to, you know, we have to hold, and we've talked about this so many times, but we have to hold on to what it says instead of recognizing its own limits and grabbing the heart of that. Because that's honestly, like we boil down to it, whether we're intellectualizing something or we're trying to learn something or whatever, it still has this base in the way we live our lives. It still has the basis in what's real to us. And it's when you're, like you said, willful ignorance. It's when you're confronted with something that clearly goes against what you've held dear and you don't even take a second thought to to deny it or to push it away because you don't need anything else. This is fascinating, actually, because I, I recently had a conversation with uh, someone in, close to me who um, is, is uh, for religious reasons, um, ha- has explained themselves as like, very sincerely not trying to be homophobic, but they believe because of their personal convictions that homosexuality is still, you know, kind of like love the sinner, hate the sin kind of situation. And it hurts my heart to even say that. I went through the nine Bible verses that talk about homosexuality with this person and talked about how you really can't build a theological case against homosexuality based on the Bible. You just can't like you, you, it doesn't, it falls apart like really quickly. And after the end of that whole conversation, this person said, well, you know what, even if the Bible isn't super clear on this, it just still doesn't feel right in my heart. And therefore I'm not going to change my, my theology on this issue. And that's where it gets really interesting to me that people, even who are biblical literalists, um, hold to a morality that's even higher than the Bible that determines how they read the Bible in a lot of cases. And that, that's, how, that's how I define anti-intellectualism. Well, and holds them in line with the very criticism that they have against the world, that you can't just feel something and everything's going to be okay. The Bible needs to be your authority, but their, you know what I mean? Their actions and the way they approach the world doesn't even match that basic concept. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is why after someone who's gone through four years of seminary and done all this you know, training in, in biblical exegesis and stuff like that, and has studied two biblical languages, and um, I see the amount of training that it takes to become ministers in other denominations. And I, I don't want to say anything bad about it. I, I honestly, like, I, I am frustrated that I did all that work and that other people can get ordained really <laughs> a lot easier. But it, it is interesting that Okay, I want to tread lightly here because I, I know people that I know and love and really respect and look up to who've um, been ordained in um, churches that don't require a lot of um, training. But it is interesting to me that those churches don't require a lot of biblical training in particular because when you really start studying the Bible and get into biblical scholarship, you realize that actually the Bible is clear on very little. And if you study it too much, it kind of the house of cards start to fall apart about how many, uh, about what kind of truth claims that you can make about the Bible. Um, So it it is interesting that people who tend to study more tend to drift farther and farther to the left, to progressivism and away from conservatism. 
ism. I mean, in almost in a lot of cases, I've known so many people who've come into education, um, you know, very conservative and have left like at least a moderate, if not far to the left. And so, so the, the, I, I think the evangelical block would say, well, that's because schools have become super liberal and that's a problem. We need to go reform the seminaries. There, we, need go, we need to reform the cemeteries where faith goes to die. That's what they jokingly call them. Um, so, so, okay, that's a theory. That's an interesting theory to examine. Um, certainly academia tends to be more progressive in general. Um, but maybe because it's, it's so common it's so common for that trend to happen. Maybe it's something else. To me, it's something else happening that once you become, once you get that kind of education, once you learn to critically think, you learn that answers are not, there really aren't that many answers that you can just drop, you know, and that, that kind of world, it might make sense and it might be comforting, but it's not real. That, that world is a magical world. That's a world of magical thinking. Well, if I could you. play a slight devil's advocate sure. to those ideas, because I agree with you. Like one of my frustrations when I was in the evangelical church is that there was very little. It seemed like if you had a good business and marketing mind, then you would make a great pastor <laughs> from my context, you know, um, with very little theological training. And almost th- there were many teachers and pastors that wore that like a badge. Like I didn't get any biblical training, but I know this, you know what I mean? Like just mm. throw it out there on the flip side, being on the other end myself. Cause I, again, I, like I said, I didn't go to seminary, uh, at, at one point I almost did, but I decided I didn't want to. Um, but I, I'm stuck because of that as far as moving forward as a pastor within more mainline progressive denominations because I don't have an MDiv uh, to to get ordained. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm ordained online so I could do weddings. You know what I mean? Like I I got ordained with the same organization that Conan O'Brien and Dwayne The Rock Johnson got ordained with. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> because for me, it's always been just about having a piece of paper so I could, you know, do a student's wedding when they got married. And that that's all ordination was for me because it didn't change the fact that I, I'll look at mainline pastors and go to mainline churches and be like, you know what? I'm not to be too prideful, but I'm, I'm a 10 times more qualified to run a church than they are. But they went to that school. And, and it, it's interesting that when you're talking about all this, you, you've used the, the term truth claims a lot of times. And I think that that's just a problem with church in general is that, or clergy in general, is that you feel you're providing truth for people as opposed to just trying to create a space where people can explore truth. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that though. Don't you think? Jack? Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, so, so I guess the question is like, what is the role of church? Is the church a place for people to go find answers to hard questions? Like for some people, if you let that go, then like, what the heck are we doing here? Like, are we just a community center? Um, I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with this really old model of one person who's been educated, like talking at everybody else, like we've talked about in other episodes. Well, and I think that that's, that's a good point. And again, like I've talked about this on the show before, because we've had other people on with different alternative church models. I love talking about different ways that we can do church because part of my personality is horribly rebellious and I want to, you know, undermine every system I'm ever a part of. But that's, that, that goes to that whole idea of, you're right, like church is based off of one voice. It's based off of guiding a community with one voice. And who's to say you can't have someone who's been trained intellectually to be more of like a, a guide for things that are said, but still allowing more people to say it. And I think that's where a lot of people are headed. I really do. I think the the days of um, and, and a lot of this has come out of education theory. There's a guy, 
a few cent, uh, it's not centuries, decades ago, named Paulo Freire, who wrote a really groundbreaking book called uh, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, who said, you know, the way we've been teaching people is not efficient. We, we, we treat people like their bank, their boxes or banking that is the model is called banking. We treat people or students or anyone who's being taught like they're just kind of this, this box that you can like put knowledge into. You can just dump some knowledge and then they've got the knowledge and then they, they, they have the knowledge. It's, it's, so, so you see a lot of education now is moving to a more discussion, Socratic, uh, equipping, giving people tools, but then like really encouraging them to take that, that information and build something of their own, construct arguments and, uh, critically think for, critically think for themselves. Um, so, so, uh, teaching someone versus constructing a critical thinker. The second route is much, much, much harder because you're asking people to take responsibility. They're going to go through phases uh, where they they have enough knowledge and information to become pretty dangerous and prideful. Um, and that is really freaking hard for a community to go through. Like you all remember that one person in your community who just knows things and they want everybody to know that they know things and they aren't really interested in dialoguing, you know, or they're interested in picking debates because they like debates, but usually it's, it's kind of got a petty sort of tone and an off-putting tone to it. Um, that can be incredibly divisive. So you're describing my early twenties. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I know. But on the other hand, you know, we, we have rebels to thank for the history of the church. Yeah. Well, and we can't, we can't have this conversation without acknowledging the fact that there is, you know, just so we say that being willful, willfully ignorant is a, is hugely problematic. I think it's equally problematic on the other side to define what education is and to make it something that is only for people with a certain economic status or a certain nationality. Because quite honestly, I mean, most of, of Christian theology and the things that we talk about intellectualism are coming from white Europeans. Yes. And what what you're saying is really ringing very true because for me, because this, a, a lot of the seminaries are really struggling right now. Um, not only are progressive church numbers dwindling, but seminaries are having trouble uh, with, you know, funding and, um, f- and getting people in the doors um, just to enroll. And it's because like seminary, the MDS seminary education came from a time in the 1950s when ministers had a really prominent pay- place in society and, Seriously, the MDiv didn't really exist before the 1950s. Um, it was during a time when they wanted, when churches were really, mainline churches were really powerful, like Unitarian churches, United Church of Christ churches, uh, Methodist churches, really powerful in society, really influential. And they wanted a degree that would rival lawyers and doctors. So the MDiv, the Masters of Divinity degree that's that you can obtain at a number of schools across the country. That's usually about a three-year degree and you learn all kinds of stuff, like a really broad, it's, it's meant to equip you as a pastor, but it's also meant to like make you into a public intellectual that will be respected alongside these other offices. Um, but we're getting into the 21st century and we're realizing that a, nobody has the time anymore to go through a three-year additional master's program after your undergrad. Like, who's got the time for that? Especially people who've got families to support and whatever else. It's it's a huge financial strain on the schools and the people themselves going through it. A lot of times people going through seminary get into tons of tons of debt that they can never pay back as pastors, which is horrifying and awful. Um, and they're encouraged to do it because admissions offices are so desperate to get students in the door. Um and 
there just aren't jobs for pastors graduating. So Jeff, you might have dodged a huge bullet there. Um, and I'm not interested in clergy work at this point in my life. So I've, I've gotten the MDiv more as a personal development because I was just interested and wanted to understand the stuff, you know, the places where I've come from and, and be able to have these conversations. Um, but yeah, it's, it can be really hard because it creates an intellectual hierarchy of people who've completed, had the, had the privilege of completing these degrees, um, being more, you know, kind of closer to God or I don't know what, but just, that's problematic. You're absolutely right. That's problematic. It is. And And there's no, I don't know, like, what do you, what do you do with that? You know, it's, it's, it's almost like the equivalent of, you know, I really need to learn, uh, computers. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a MySpace class. You know what I mean? Like it's this, it's so disconnected from how everything goes and you're putting all this money into something that's going to, that's really going to reap very little benefit. Well, and it's, it's hard because like having seen this from the inside, like seminary degrees are amazing. Like I say all that hard stuff. If you can find a place where you can go and and get funding and you have the time to do it, like it is one of the hardest, most rigorous, stimulating, fascinating, enthralling um, places to be and things that I've gone through. It's really emotionally difficult because you're basically studying suffering and you're studying God's response to suffering and you're grappling with these huge heart issues, but you're doing it alongside other interesting people who want to do good in the world and people who've gone through rigorous seminary programs, like you hear them preach and it's just, they sound like a Martin Luther King. They're trained to speak these incredible profound truths or profound words. We won't, well, maybe not even say true. I'll say truths plural, you know? Um, yeah, but, but that's not the case for everyone. Sometimes not, it just becomes a boring ass lecture. It's true. It's true. And so that's, I think where conservatives and liberals can learn from each other. Yes. <laughs> maybe that's where we're getting with this. Um, but the, the, the mainline churches are diminishing because, you know, even you have, you have these people trained to be silver, silver, silver tongue Cicero's, um, who can, who can make deep theological truths available to everyday people. Um, people just aren't coming in the church doors. So that's kind of a moot point, right? So that, that's why the alternate church model is interesting because I think just most people in modern society don't have the patience to sit through a sermon. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. I really don't even really great preachers. I don't, I don't attend cause I just, it, I could think of other things that I would rather be doing. And that's a horrible thing to say, I guess, but, um, that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't, so. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a horrible thing at all. Honestly, yeah. I don't like, I think it's that honest. It is, it is honest. And I think that it's a big, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that you're alone. I would say that for, for your generation and probably even part of mine, that's the reality of it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I can't, like, every time I go online or go on Facebook, there's a new gimmick on getting people into church and all this kind of stuff. And even the rhetoric in churches as, as I'm in a church right now, you know, there's this, there's this total disconnect with, with the world around them in a lot of ways. Like, well, that's, you know, and this has been tr- true in every context that I've been in. Just I'm just going to throw that out there. So I'm not saying this is a mainline thing or an evangelical thing, but it is churches have been built to draw people in and then keep them there, right? Like, oh, well, Boy Scouts is over there, so we're going to create our own thing, whether it's Awana or Royal Rangers or, 
you know, whatever. So we, we bring people into this bubble and then parallel cultures. Yeah. Clergies are the worst because that that's their whole job. And it becomes not just their job, but their life. And there's very little connection with the outside world. And anytime you break from that, you're going to get criticized or, you know, you need to care more about the church or whatever. Like it is just so, it's so its own world that it can be irrelevant sometimes. Maybe I would be, it's funny. It's funny that (laughs) I'm going to be way more generous than that. And say, I, I think people do their best to create communities and to provide communities that meet people's needs. I agree. But when your community is based off of a, a, a I don't know, an anthem or a motto of make disciples of the nations, I think it's problematic. Like, it's well, fine yeah. if that's if that's your purpose. I, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. <laughs> if but, that's your purpose to bring in community, that's fine. And I think the church does a great job of it. And, and it can be a sub-community or whatever. But when your whole basis is to be a community that reaches out to the world, then you need to be in the world sometimes. Yeah, I, I think I think being in the world is good. I, I, I mean, maybe the counter argument for that would be is like, you know, when are, when's the time we come together and equip to go out and be in the world to be really good global citizens? No, that's that's not to say that I, that we deny yeah. that part of it. I think I I love church. I mean, I work in the church and I still want to work in some sort of church setting for the rest of my life. But I I also want to be honest and 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 rethink things and be able never be stuck with a certain system because I think that's the problem and I could get big trouble for this one but I think that's the problem with the Bible and I think that's the problem with the Constitution is that every time we say we need to get back to something whether it's a, a especially a text or a set of guidelines those are so there's such a snapshot of history and that if we don't learn to adapt the heart of those things and be willing to throw stuff out then we're we're creating we're isolating ourselves we're we're willfully we're willfully making ourselves ignorant and i yeah. think that that's it's just so damaging see to me seminary was way more stimulating and interesting than church ever was like and it's not even because of the the intellectual rigor it's just because i got to interact and it got it was a dialogue like I could ask questions during lecture and I could, I, I was, I was asked to think, I was asked to use my brain and to do things with my mind. And seriously, like after coming out of, tra- of a tradition where I felt that my takeaway from being an anti-intellectual tradition all through growing up and being a pastor's kid and being told knowledge puffs up, don't ask too many questions, um, you know, so to speak, um, in a, in a lot of different ways, even in the ways that the services were constructed and the ways that, you know, the types of conversations that were acceptable and fostered versus those that just weren't engaged. Um, my takeaway from that, uh, and, and this is where, this is my point of, you know, I'm going to engage some emotional here. My point of pain, my point of frustration and, and hurt was that I came away from that tradition feeling like I cannot trust my own mind. My own mind is a dangerous place and I need to always be skeptical of what's going on there. And that really led it to me not being able to trust myself or know who I was seriously to a, like a deep level. So getting to seminary and being like, Oh, I can trust my own mind. I can think really hard and I can say things that make sense and are smart and logical and, and also resonate with a sense of faith and a sense of belief in the greater, in the, in the divine and the greater and the beyond. And, and, uh, after, after that journey, going back into a church where I'm sitting in a pew and listening to someone talk at me, I swear to God, I can't do it. I don't like it. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and I, yeah, and I, that's I think that's part of a. I mean, there's a whole other subject that we've talked about, and we could talk about more. But that's that's the problem with church is that it, that it is a it is it is not participatory. It is you know you're just going to sit there and listen. Well, I, I think we're we're <laughs> we're running out of time on this conversation. So um, let me get to final thoughts. I'll give mine, and then you can give yours. But for me, it's. It, it, we've been talking a lot about seminary and learning theology and stuff like that. But I think when it comes to the church, I think that's fine. And we need to be able to recognize when we're ignorant about a subject and go to someone who knows about that subject instead of just making claims because we sort of know about it. And I think that the bottom line is whatever you love, whatever you're interested in, whatever you're interested in, become a super nerd about it. Learn all that you can, whether it's the Bible, whether it's agriculture, whether it's fixing cars, like just immerse yourself in the things that you love. And I think in a church setting, that's your contrib- contribution. You recognize, and, and I think that's part of the problem when we come to clergy is they're expected to be all these things when all they really are is a Bible teacher. So they shouldn't be in charge of finances or they shouldn't be in charge of administration or organizing unless that's something they love and are and are part of. And I think that if we base communities around positions and not talents and knowledge, then that's where we run into the problem is because then we'll have people making truth claims, whether it's biblical truth claims or, you know, mechanical truth claims or whatever, and being ignorant because they, they say that their way is the right way, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Yeah. And I think that prides come up quite a few times. My, my last thoughts are a couple of different things. I, I, I'm thinking, I think back to the example of Jesus. Jesus had really strong words for hierarchical pride and looking down your nose at other people who don't know as much as you, like the Pharisees, right? But Jesus really never shut down anyone who like willfully, persistently, rebelliously questioned and persisted and pushed through. Like Jesus really actually had reward and and um, kindness and encouragement for those folks. So if you've been told that you... If you've been in any way shut down for questioning or for being a rebel, uh, just know that you're in good company with a lot of, you know, with a lot of um, saints and reformers throughout the ages. And that is not a bad way to be. Um, uh, One one thing that I want to get into before we end is that um, I've always got a mind toward reconciliation and I really have seen... um, this is a challenge to progressives because we're talking to progressives now at this point as post evangelicals, people who listen to the show tend to be more progressive. Um, I, I heard about a church community recently who was a very intellectual mainline community who really wanted to try, start to try to mend the uh, Sunday morning seg- segregation problem. As you know, that's the most segregated time in this country, uh, Sunday mornings, because we have generally speaking uh, churches very divided uh, uh, amongst race. And so this church decided to befriend a uh, church of people of color. I believe it was a black church in town and try to reconcile and bring those communities together. Um, but the first church, the mainline church was so intellectual that they had serious issue with the black church's theology and they couldn't hear them and they treated them like kind of in a childish way. Like here we are doing something great for you and you guys can't, you know, like listen to our sound intellectual doctrine. What's wrong with you? You know? So I think intellectualism can be, it can be sinful. It can be evil. Absolutely. If we don't, um, if we don't really learn the language of the other party and learn to try to really listen and really seriously try to actually understand where they're coming from and not think you know because you have an intellectual theory to go with it, but to really marry the rational and the emotional together. That's right on. I like it. 
So let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to this particular conversation, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 77. And that's our show notes. And we will also have links to all the stuff that we've talked about if you want to know more. And then for general questions, comments, and concerns for the show, you can always contact us on our contact page, which is irenacast.com slash feedback. And on the other side of the music, we'll have an opportunity to check in a little bit with our hosts, find out how everyone's doing. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you'll know that we used to, we had a slightly different format to the show. Our very first episode, we actually did our segment first, but we realized that would, that kind of prolonged the main event. So, but we also spent we used to spend like the first ten minutes talking just about our day, just checking in with our hosts. How's everyone doing? And we for we forgo forgoed that forgoed. we forgoed it. <laughs> <laughs> we we got rid of Forwent. that <laughs> and uh just because we wanted to get we, we just we, forsook it exactly well we had some good suggestions about really getting to the to the heart of the topic and we try to as much as we can really get into the topic right away and save the other stuff for later so we just figured for this segment instead of doing a game or whatever well, let's just do an old-fashioned check-in how are things going mona what are you up to how is life how's the world you know li- life is pretty good i'm having a good summer it's been hot I uh, recently moved to a, a new house with some cool housemates. I really like it. My room has got is a great size, but it only has the one window. So I was like, I was I was in this epic battle of like, I'm not going to put my air conditioner in the window, the unit, because it will block the light. And light is so important to me. You know, I'm an artist. I need my lighting. <laughs> but like a couple days ago, it, I reached a breaking point and I was just like drenched in sweat. And I went to the attic crawl space and I was like, where's my air conditioner? And I brought it down and I like tried to install it. And I got it in the window and I screwed in all the things and I installed it. And then I looked at the length of the cord and I looked at where the outlet was on the wall. Oh. And it was one of those like 80s movies like the the camera pans up from the ceiling and it's like no so i promptly went had to go find an extension cord at the hardware store and but it's it's here now it's so exciting if you don't live in a really hot muggy climate you'll if you do live in a hot muggy climate you'll understand the struggle it's so gross to wake up in a pool of your own sweat every morning oh i can't imagine that i can't imagine that yeah california heat is so nice compared to humidity dude and right now i live like on the coast like i open my window and i see the ocean and it is seriously gorgeous since we moved in this house i haven't even turned had to turn on like a fan or a heater or anything oh. it's been, it been like two years because it just stays so right it stays like in the morning you wake up to like you know the mid 50s in the temperature and then like it never gets hotter than like 73 degrees around here it is oh my god it's beautiful paradise totally is beautiful how's your garden doing uh my garden the garden's going pretty well i actually don't get too involved in that i have a tendency to like when i find something that's interesting to me just you know get to know it and uh my that's kind of like my wife's thing with the girls so i'm like i'm willfully ignorant (laughs) when it comes to the garden (laughs) because i don't want to step on that that time. And I know that I will. I just know my personality. Like when I know something and I'm really passionate about it, I just want to get in there. And I know sometimes I can Bigfoot, um, especially my wife. I feel bad for her because I'm this big old nerd about everything I touch. So I, I've purposely kind of just stepped back from that and just, I said, you, you, you grow it and I will, I will cook it. And, uh, 
it's pretty amazing. The girls go out there with their little gardening hats and boots on. And it's like the cutest thing I've ever, they have like tiny size garden tools, like yes. little rakes and shovels and stuff. And they, they help mom garden. It's the cutest thing ever. It's going good. We were actually cooking some of the, the, the zucchini. Like seriously, this thing is huge. I don't know what steroids she's putting in those, uh, those plants, but this zucchini is the biggest thing I've ever seen. They look like dinosaur plants, those things. Yeah, yeah. they really do. So, but they're delicious every time. Like everyone always said, oh, you know, stuff from the garden so much better from the store. And I was like, whatever. That's not really true. That's just something people say, but it really is. Like, it's not like it I is. was, I was even like, I, I don't even have any cognitive bias to think that that, like, I was totally skeptical in that first bite I took. I was like, wow, this is actually. It actually is better. You know, it's funny. I had a I had a big garden. I lived on three acres with some friends, which was right this time of year. I'm like hankering for gardening, and I don't have anywhere to garden right now. It's driving me crazy. But I we we grew zucchini, and the leaves are so big. The leaves are like you know the size of beach balls, basically. And uh, I had several zucchini plants because we had so much space to spread out. And one day I was kind of digging around doing some weeding and I found a zucchini, like a rogue zucchini that had been hiding out under several uh, leaves. And this thing, I promise you, was like the length of my armpit to my wrist. It was the hugest thing I've ever seen in my life. I was like, I accidentally grew a prize zucchini. I'm sure they get much bigger than that. But I have to tell you, we ate it and it didn't taste like anything. They're better when they're small. But it was really exciting when it happened. Interesting. I guess that makes sense. So you, you could let one grow really big, although it might like leach off the flavor from the other ones. Yeah. Well, this one kind of, one of these, we have one section of the garden that grew by accident because we just got, we just got a tumbler for a compost, I guess. But before we just kind of dug a hole and we were, and then we just forgot about it. So like all this stuff started <laughs> growing <laughs> where the compost pile was. And it Oh, all you're the, not supposed to put seeds in there. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it's all, it's all there, but it's, oh, it's, funny. it's delicious. It's wonderful. A dump garden. That's awesome. Yeah, but you know, other than that, life is life is good. It was my uh, my girls just turned three years old last week. Aww. I can't believe I know I can't believe the time. So we did their their whole party thing, and um, ever since they were born, I started a tradition that the day or not the day after, but um, all the cell phone footage that my wife and I have collected throughout the year, I create a musical montage of the year for because my my Facebook page for our for our family, we have family spread all over. I do twin Tuesday. So I put, just post a picture or two from the week every Tuesday. So the family can see them and watch them grow and stuff like that. But then at the end of the year, I do like a special edition and I compile all the, the actual live footage that no one had seen throughout the rest of the year. And I make this one montage video. So I just finished their year three video and, uh, it's it's become more of an exercise like for me than for anyone else like I started just because my family never I don't have any I don't have a lot of pictures from when I was a kid so I wanted to so I'm overdoing it for my daughters and I just there's a lot of things like I would have liked to known like how I moved and what I did when I was a little baby but I have no record of that you know That's really cool. So it started out as like yeah here's for you girls and I want you to enjoy this later and I hopefully they will but now it's become like my favorite time of the year. Like I work on it throughout the whole year. Like at the end of every month, I just pick a couple items and throw it in the timeline. But then when it comes to the, the, the week of their birthday, I always like, I sit down and I spend some time on it and I go through all the footage and it's like, it's amazing how much they grow from year to year. I know eventually it'll slow up a little bit cause they'll get older, but man, it's, it's such a great time. Like it's my favorite time of the year. Just putting the, the video together. I love it. I love those videos. They're so cute. So what do you, what do you plans for this weekend? 
Hopefully nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, because we, we, we two weekends ago we had their birthday, and then the last weekend we had their sort of their birthday again with other family. So it's I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I just want to relax and try sometimes to take some time. Just, and yeah, I want to staycation. Sometimes you just need some down some downtime. Yeah, I've been planning this already. I'm gonna. I'm going to play, I have an N64 that hasn't really gotten much use, so my boyfriend is bringing over Pokemon Snap, do you remember that game? And we're going to play Pokemon Snap, and then we're going to go out and bring our hammocks to the park and just sit in hammocks. It's going to be so good. I'm so excited. That Probably sounds make amazing. make some food in there. I know. I never so. played that Pokemon game. Like, the games that I think of when I think of the 64 are the Zelda, Majora's Mask, yes. and the Ocarina of Time. And I'm halfway through Majora's Mask right now. It's <sighs> incredible. So good. So good. Yeah. And then Goldeneye. I don't play games anymore that where, where real people get shot, but at the time, like, that first James Bond Goldeneye movie, or Goldeneye game, was like, to me, it's synonymous with the 64. Yeah, that game was really well made, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I have a hard time playing it now, too. Just, I don't like guns or whatever, but... Um, yeah. Okay. Pokemon Snap. It sounds weird. I didn't, I'm not doing the whole Pokemon Go thing, but, um, Pokemon Snap is just, you take pictures of the Pokemon. So it's like a picture safari and it's hard and it's really fun. So anyway, that's, that's the plan. Make food, play Pokemon, go out in hammocks. I might as well be eight years old with with my buds. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to be eight years old, right? Yeah, exactly. Just enjoying summer. So for all you listening, go enjoy your summer. Don't work too hard. Go on a bike ride. Listen to our Renacast. Hang out. Use use us for your leisure time. Plant a garden. <laughs> well, that'll definitely do it for us this week. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support Irenacast, you can go to irenacast.com slash support for all the ways to show love to the show. Subscribe to the show, whether if you're on iPhone, do that on iTunes. If you're on an Android, you can go to Google Play now. We are in Google Play, and you can subscribe to the podcast there. Leave your feedback or review. We would really appreciate it. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. Thanks for joining the conversation. 